Hello everyone and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters brought to you by the Employment Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment employers from the best law firms around the world. I will be your host today and my name is Marion Carr. Along with bringing you updates and critical events happening around the world, we are also fortunate to have the chance to tell in our local ELA lawyers that practice on the ground in these jurisdictions and are working daily to help their local clients move through these difficult times. On the program, we span the globe and have received updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. Today, we are going to be chatting with several of our members in Australia. Joining us today on the program are Michael Nicolazzo, Special Consul at Maddox, and Bruce Heddle, Partner at Maddox. Today, Michael and Bruce are going to share with us an update on the pandemic, along with the gig economy, remuneration, and casual employees in Australia. Welcome to the program, Michael and Bruce. How are you doing today? We're great, Marion, and you are as well too, I hope. Thank you. Thank you for, for being there today. And maybe before we move to, to the core of the discussion, on a general level, how is Australia currently handling the pandemic? Very differently to the rest of the world, I think. Australia is a country with about 25 million people. We have had so far just over 30,000 cases in total in that period of time. And we've had less than 1,000 deaths in total during the duration of the pandemic. So very different background to where the rest of the world is at. And I think with that background, I'll hand over to Michael to make a few other comments about where we are at in the context of the pandemic. Yeah, I'll just echo Bruce's comments. We've been very fortunate compared to to other countries. We're in an extremely fortunate position from a health perspective and relatively well from from an economic perspective as well. There were some quick decisions made early on in 2020 to close borders. Now, that also means that the international borders are still closed and that has created some of an issue. But it's also meant that we've had very little community transmission. The federal government introduced a wage subsidy last year known as JobKeeper, and that was provided to a significant number of employees. And we've had some initial lockdowns in early 2020 and then reopening from around June last year. In Melbourne, Victoria, where I'm based, we experienced a second wave where cases got up to about 700 per day, and we endured a pretty strict lockdown for about three months. But since then, we have been relatively open, but we have had some snap lockdowns here and then as the government is approaching or or trying to achieve an elimination strategy. And speaking of of the lockdown, have employees now largely returned to the office? Well, there has been some good momentum until a little while ago on that front. There's few employers so far who are requiring a full-time return to work in the office. Most employers are still accommodating hybrid arrangements so that people are working partly from home and partly in the office. And for those hybrid arrangements, there are some employers that are mandating certain baselines for employees to to meet. So for example, they might say that full-time employees have to be in the office three out of five days each week, or that part-time employees need to be in the office for 50% of their time. Other employers are leaving it more to an ad hoc arrangement where employees have got a little bit more input into exactly how much time they spend in the office each week. Some of the recent outbreaks in Melbourne and Sydney that Michael has alluded to, and for context, again, we're talking about maybe 10 or 15 cases a day in each city rather than hundreds or thousands. 
have certainly interrupted the momentum a little bit, but people are starting to get more and more back into the office. And of course, there is a very hot topic right now, and it relates to vaccination. So I was wondering whether the vaccination rollout had you know, an impact on, on Australia's response to, to the pandemic. Yeah, it's a good question. I guess to some extent, there's been no real tangible impact. And what I mean by that is that we're still seeing lockdowns in response to a small number of cases and very small outbreaks. And I think you know, that, that's been caused by the rollout here in Australia. It's been quite a slow process, which has been caused by some concerns about supply. And then we had some changes only as recently as last week about certain age groups and eligibility for certain vaccines. So that's put a dent in some of the confidence levels for, for Australians to go out and get vaccinated. But that said, uh, I think what we have seen, given the, the most recent outbreaks here in Melbourne and Sydney, is that there's been a lot more progress with people willing to get vaccinated. And you know, I think the latest figures demonstrate only about 5% of our population has been fully vaccinated. So there's quite a long way to go. So I would expect and I'm hopeful that as more and more people get vaccinated, that our response or the government's response to the, the pandemic will change and move away from those lockdowns to, to other measures. And to rebound on, on the vaccination, are employers able to mandate vaccinations for employees in, in Australia right now? Well, that's an interesting question. I think generally the answer is no. Some recent guidance has been issued by a number of parties, the government, the employment law regulator here in Australia, and various work health and safety regulators. And, and that guidance is that with some fairly limited exceptions, employers cannot require their employees to be vaccinated against COVID-19 here in Australia. However, in limited circumstances, vaccinations may be required. And, and that's principally in areas like health, aged care, for emergency workers, and for workers that might work in hotel or other quarantine. The key points about those cohorts of workers is their potential exposure to contracting COVID-19 themselves, their interaction with people who are vulnerable, for example, people that are in aged care facilities, and the number of people that they might come into contact with in the course of performing their roles. There's no case law here in Australia yet about COVID vaccines and employer requirements to, to become vaccinated. Interestingly, there are a few recent cases about flu vaccines, and they're probably illustrative of where the courts and tribunals might get to with COVID-19 vaccinations if the matters are litigated. So there was one home aged care employee who refused a flu vaccination, allegedly on the basis that she'd had an allergic reaction to a flu shot some 50 years earlier. There was a receptionist at a high care aged care facility who refused a flu vaccination and there was an educator in an early learning centre who also said that she'd had an allergic reaction some 10 or more years ago to a flu shot. All of them were dismissed for refusing the vaccination and all of them brought unfair dismissal claims and they all lost, either on the basis that what the employer was requiring them to do was a reasonable and lawful direction in the circumstances or alternatively that the requirement to be vaccinated was an inherent requirement of their role and if they weren't prepared to become vaccinated, they fail to meet the inherent requirements of the role. So in some limited circumstances, vaccinations can be required, but on an across-the-board basis, the answer is no. Very interesting and very interesting case law as well. I'm sure we're going to have more of these examples in the next few months. So maybe moving back to another topic of the program today, I understand that 
there have been some recent developments in Australia in relation to the gig economy, also called on-demand economy. What can you tell us about those? Yeah, there, there have been some, some recent developments, and I think there will be some more changes on the gig economy in the near future in, in the Australian context. So the main development, there was a recent case involving a Deliveroo driver who was terminated from his engagement. And he was engaged by Deliveroo as a supplier or, or as a contractor under a services agreement. And at the same time, he was also working as a driver for Uber Eats and another platform called DoorDash. So there's no, I guess, exclusivity of work. Deliveroo found that his delivery times were, were a bit slow compared to others. And so terminated the supplier agreement. And the driver challenged the termination and he relied on Australia's unfair dismissal laws. He argued that he was an employee and so he was protected from unfair dismissal. And up until this point, really, the laws in Australia don't generally recognise gig economy workers as employees. They're, they're largely contractors and unable to have access to the unfair dismissal jurisdiction. So the decision really, I guess, moved away from previous decisions, which looked at the employer-employee relationship. And, and the commissioner focused on the technology used, which created a level of control over the driver, found that the driver you know, working for others, which was called multi-apping, is just an example of the changes that technology brings to the employment relationship. And so I guess littered throughout the decision, you see this recognition that the regulation of the employment relationship hasn't really kept up with changes in technology and consumer behaviour. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But, but ultimately, what the Fair Work Commission found was that the delivery driver was an employee. And because he was an employee, he was unfairly dismissed. And the commissioner went so far as to, to order reinstatement. Now, the decision has been appealed. And so I think because of that, we'll see some more clarity about on-demand workers and, and the gig economy in the coming months. It's a really interesting space. You know, we don't have a situation like we see in the United Kingdom where there's a third category of workers or a third category of an employment status where there's a worker alongside an employee and a contractor. And what we've also seen here in Victoria is a recent inquiry into the gig economy. And that suggests or pose a whole number of recommendations to recognise these types of workers there was one recommendation that they refer to these individuals as entrepreneurial workers and that they have certain rights and entitlements under Australia's employment law framework and that a body be created to determine the status of these individuals. So I think it's very much a watch this space in the Australian context and, and I definitely think we'll see some more changes in the near future. Thank you very much, Michael. So I understand there have also been changes in the remuneration legal framework and especially changes proposed to remuneration reporting requirements for some entities. Could you maybe tell us more about, about this? Thank you, Marion. Yes, so maybe some context to begin. There, there's no general regulation of remuneration arrangements that companies may have in place in Australia. There are some requirements for companies that are listed on our stock exchange and there are also some requirements in our Corporations Act about termination arrangements, which then flow into how things like STI and LTI arrangements can operate for senior executives. But then beyond that, we had a Royal Commission, which is a little bit like a commission of inquiry into our banking, financial services, superannuation and insurance industries in 2017 through to 2019. And that Royal Commission made various recommendations about raising the bar regarding 
remuneration policies, practices and governance in those industries moving forward. We have had in Australia for a few years now something we call the BEAR regime, which is the Banking Executive Accountability Regime. That's administered by our financial services regulator, applies to deposit-taking institutions, and it imposes some guidelines around variable remuneration for directors and senior executives. The financial services regulator has separately, more broadly, had some standards in place for some time. But at the moment, there's a discussion draft out for comment about beefing up those standards, addressing things like financial metrics for variable pay, minimum deferred periods for variable pay, and they're going to be revised upwards from the existing standards, increased scope to recover vested remuneration in those industries, and a more active role for boards regarding oversight and implementation of remuneration policies and practices. Now, the final version of those new standards is expected to be published this year and implementation on a stage basis is expected from 2023. So in the banking and related industries, there are some quite significant changes that are on the horizon in terms of how they deal with their remuneration arrangements. And I also understand that there have been some changes for a world covered employees. Is that correct? That's correct, Marion. And so I guess just going back, Sep, so we've got here in Australia, the employment relationship governed by the employment contract or what are known as uh, industry-wide awards. So they're industrial instruments that set out a whole bunch of terms and conditions to particular industries. And so in early 2020, we, we saw the Fair Work Commission, which is Australia's industrial tribunal, introduce what are called annualised wage arrangements to a number of awards. And that permits the, the rolling up of annualised salaries to offset compensation for, for penalties or loadings or allowances. But what the changes have also meant is that they can create some difficulties for employers. The clauses do require an employer to perform a yearly reconciliation. And so there needs to be a comparison of what the employee received under the annualised wage compared with what they would have been entitled to under, under that relevant award, that instrument. So had they received overtime allowances and penalties, I guess, a check and a balance to make sure that the annualised wage or salary is sufficient for that. And so what we have seen is some employers introduce a requirement to introduce start and and end times and and, uh, recognise or at least regulate unpaid breaks so that an employee acknowledges a timesheet, so to speak. And that can be quite burdensome. You know, historically, annualised wages or salaries were used as a means of convenience but the changes have imposed some quite onerous notification and record keeping and auditing requirements. And so I think we see that tension between the need for regulation to ensure that employees are paid properly, there's no underpayment or or no wage theft, but at the same time, there's quite a burden imposed on employers. And and so we're seeing that level of regulation become a bit of a concern in Australia's system. So I understand that some legislation is due to shortly commence dealing with wage theft. Could you maybe tell us more about this and also perhaps explain this the concept of wage theft, which is quite new for me and which does not exist in, in all jurisdictions? Yeah, it's, it's a new piece of legislation introduced in Victoria and it's due to start next week. So it's really looking at, you know, it introduces a, a criminal, a criminal offence for the dishonest withholding of, of payment for employees. So you know, there's a deliberate dishonest attempt from employers 
to ensure or, or, or to mean that uh, an employee is not paid what they're entitled to. Uh, and so it really came on the back of you know, large employers being found to have been deliberately underpaying their employees. And part of that has been because our awards can be quite complex. So a lot of employers say we've tried to legitimately apply these awards and the various entitlements and the loadings, but they are quite complex, which has resulted in underpayment. And so what the Victorian government set about was to do was to, to make deliberate, dishonest underpayment a criminal offence. And so it really goes towards that element of dishonesty and that withholding of pay or, or falsifying records of pay to hide that financial advantage as well. Interestingly, what the Victorian legislation does, Marion, it introduces a maximum penalty of 10 years imprisonment, so quite a significant penalty or a civil penalty for, for an organisation of almost a million dollars. And so, like I said, it's not intended to, to target or, or to capture employers who, who make stakes in their calculations. It's really targeted at that deliberate, dishonest pay underpayment. And because it is a criminal offence, it's quite a high threshold. And that's understandable given, given the possible consequence. In other states, we haven't quite seen other states go so far as Victoria, but in Queensland, they've introduced some changes to their criminal code to make wage theft a criminal offence. So it, it likens it to stealing. And in New South Wales, they've introduced a bill which is targeted more at the business to collect payroll tax, which should have been otherwise collected, if not for the wage theft. So it's not a wage theft specific piece of legislation, but it's another form of bringing about change in behaviour from employers and payments owed to employees. And Bruce, I think this question will be for you. So I read that some changes were made to Australia's employment laws about casual employees. Could you maybe tell us more about these changes and also maybe the concept of casual employees? Thanks, Marianne. Yes. So in Australia, we've got both permanent employees and, and permanent employees can be both full-time. So they work 38 ordinary hours each week or part-time. So somebody who works less than 38 ordinary hours each week or casual. So there's a new definition of what a casual employee is, which has been inserted into our employment legislation here. And basically, a casual employee is now defined in that legislation to be a person who is employed and where at the outset of their employment, there's no firm commitment from the employer as to ongoing work or any agreed pattern of work. And if you tick those boxes, then for the purposes of a legislation, you are a casual employee. Once you're employed as a casual employee, the casual employment would then continue and the person continues to be a casual employee until either their employment comes to an end and they're no longer employed, they accept an offer of permanent employment from their employer, or they become a permanent employee via conversion. And the employment legislation that I mentioned before now gives casual employees or certain casual employees the right to become a permanent employee in certain circumstances if they have worked with their employer for 12 months. And the mechanism for that is that either the employer has an obligation to offer casual conversion to those employees unless the employer is exempted, or the casual employee can make a request for conversion to become a permanent employee. Now, there are some situations where the employer can either refuse a request or not make an offer for conversion to permanent employment, and they are set out in the legislation. 
In addition, employers now also have an obligation to give casual employees a casual employment information statement upon the commencement of their employment. The terms of that statement and the information it needs to set out are set out by the employment legislation that I mentioned earlier on. Disputes about casual employment can then also be referred to one of our industrial relations tribunals here in Australia. In addition, there's some important changes for employees in the context of historical disputes about an employee's standing. In recent years, there have been a number of cases where casual employees have attacked and sought to change their status as casual employees to that of permanent employees. And there have been some cases where that's been upheld and they have received payment of what we call a casual loading here. And so that's a payment that's made to casual employees in Australia as an offset for them because they're not receiving the benefits that attract to permanent employment, such as the accrual of leave. And so where these cases have been successful and the employees have been receiving the casual loading, sometimes for many years, the courts have said that the employer is not entitled to offset the casual loading against the permanent employment entitlements that the employees have then been held to have. The legislation now makes it clear that an offset should occur But in particular circumstances, and one of the key takeaways about these new rules is that employers need to be very careful about how they draft their contracts with casual employees to make sure that they've got appropriate provisions in those contracts, which entitles them then to access the offsetting mechanisms in the Act. So they're the key changes that have been brought about in the legislation in recent times. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bruce. Well, this has been a very interesting discussion. Thank you so much for your time, Michael and Bruce. If you would like to connect with Michael or Bruce or any of our lawyers around the world, please search for them on the ELA website at ela.law by going to the big Find a Lawyer widget in the center of the page where you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars. Download white papers and on-demand content from our online library or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employment Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Marianne Carl and thank you for listening.